This Marketplace podcast is supported by Invest Puerto Rico. Build the future in paradise. Puerto Rico, a hub for innovators brimming with world-class talent and a thriving entrepreneurial ecosystem. Learn more at investpr.org backslash marketplace today. Hello, I'm Kimberly Adams. Welcome to Make Me Smart, where none of us is as smart as all of us. I'm Kyle Rizdahl. Great to have you along on this Tuesday. It is the second day of May. Single topic today, as we do on Tuesdays, and the single topic today, I still can't believe we're talking about this in 2023. It's child labor in the United States. Uh, and what the what, as you will see. Yeah, we wanted to know more about not just why it's happening, why it's been happening, why we're getting a lot more attention on it lately, why some politicians are actually strangely enough, pushing to loosen some child labor protections. So here to make us smart about all of this is Hannah Dreyer. She's an investigative journalist for The New York Times who recently reported on how migrant children end up in dangerous jobs illegally across the U.S. Uh, Welcome to the show. So good to be with you, too. Such a a grim topic, and your reporting on this was really astonishing. You know, for a lot of people... Child labor might seem like a thing of the past, like maybe they remember the Newsies movie and and all those sort of tropes of, you know, the Great Depression and things like that. But it's still very much a real part of this economy. What does child labor look like today? I mean, child labor is on the rise in a way that even I never expected that I would find. Um, There have been 300,000 migrant children who've come across the border alone just since Biden took office. And what I found is that the majority of these kids are ending up working full time in these punishing jobs. I had thought maybe I would find kids working in restaurants, working in agriculture, but actually these kids are working industrial factory jobs. They are packing Cheerios. They're making car parts for Ford and General Motors. It's a totally different kind of child labor than we've seen in, you know, decades. I'm going to skip ahead in the story here and ask you this question, Hannah. How is this possible? I mean, when you get something this outrageous, it's pretty much always many systems failing at the same time. And what we're seeing here is a crisis in the immigration system colliding with, you know, labor shortages. So when I talked to some of these employers and asked them, how did it happen that there were children, you know, working overnight, making car parts for you? What they told me is we couldn't find workers who were going to take those jobs. And so we turned to staffing agencies and the staffing agencies then turned to these children. It's sort of both things happening at once, immigration and labor. Now, I was surprised to discover that there are sort of two buckets. There is legal child labor in this country, but what you're talking about is illegal child labor. Can you talk about what's legal and what isn't? Right. I mean, most people work when they're a teenager. I worked, I'm assuming you two probably had jobs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And 
those jobs tend to be, you know, working at a grocery store, working at a restaurant. There are a lot of things that young people can do for a few hours a day or on the weekends. But what we're talking about here are the most dangerous jobs, the kind of jobs that have been banned for children since the 1930s. So when you're talking about meat processing, roofing, these sort of industrial jobs, that's the kind of work that is always off limits for somebody who's under 18. And the sad thing is that a lot of these migrant children would qualify for work permits to be able to do those sort of more standard teenage jobs, but they would need a lawyer to help them apply. It's not that they're here totally undocumented. They sort of have a provisional legal status and they haven't applied for the work permit that would let them work a safer job. Setting aside for the for the moment the, the fact that these kids have no direct advocate right there, no lawyers, no probably caseworkers or anything, uh, where are uh, federal regulators? I mean, OSHA, for instance, what's going Where are they? Right. I mean, all of this is totally illegal. And we have the Department of Labor, which is supposed to enforce child labor laws all across the country. And what inspectors told me is that they have been very overwhelmed these last several years. They're understaffed. They're basically responding to complaints that come in. They don't have time to go out and do these proactive child labor investigations. And, you know, as you can imagine, migrant children are some of the least likely people to call a labor inspector and complain about their employer. So these kids have just been sort of in the shadows, but you know, they're not that in the shadows. I mean, if you go and watch the shift change at a lot of these factories, it's obvious that these are children, you know, a 13 year old does not look like a 19 year old. So then that's what the federal government sort of is or isn't doing here. What about corporations? What role do they play in all of this? So corporations are insulated by a, a few layers. For example, we found kids who were making Flaming Hot Cheetos. And these kids were working all night. They told me that their lungs burned from the hot dust. And then they would go to school first thing in the morning, maybe get a couple hours of sleep and then go right back to the factory to work overnight again. That, you know, is a total violation of several laws. And the kids were right there coming out of the factory, easy for anybody to see. But Cheetos, the brand, had delegated that work mm -hmm. to a manufacturer. And then the manufacturer had gone to a staffing agency to hire these children. And so when we went to Cheetos, they said, oh, well, this is against our code of conduct. Mm -hmm. And of course, we had no idea that there were children here. And after our reporting, the Department of Labor came in and started investigating the manufacturer, but not the brand. So the companies say that they're shocked, they're outraged, but they really don't have a lot of accountability. So the catch, of course, is that these kids probably uh, need the money for their families. They need the money for themselves, depending on how old they might be. Um, and if if they get cracked down upon by the Department of Labor and, and federal regulators, then they're out of a job. So is there a is there a way to protect them without making them worse off? It's such a good question. A lot of these kids are coming here. They're actually being sent by their parents because their parents can't cross the border, mm. but the kids can. 
And so they're sent and there's a lot of pressure on them to send money back home. And then they often find that the person who they are living with also expects them to pay rent, to pay for food, often to pay a debt. Hmm. And so it's not that they can really stop working, but at hmm. the very least, they could be working safer jobs. And right now they're just working the jobs that nobody else will do because those are the jobs where employers are willing to look the other way and hire a child who's working without papers. Hmm. Some states are actually loosening child labor laws. Where is that happening and, and what kind of changes are they pushing for? I mean, it's amazing in 2023 that this is what we're seeing, but there is this wave of pro-child labor laws in a lot of Republican states. Th think about so what you just said. Sorry, a pro-child labor law. Come on. <laughs> Sorry, I, no, just, I can't believe this whole thing. is We're having this conversation, honestly. It's amazing. I mean, the New York Times recently had an editorial about child labor, and the point was basically, you know, child labor is yeah. bad, yeah. which... You wouldn't think that we would need 800 words on that, but this is the situation. It's like, you have to say it out loud. Yes, this is a bad yeah. thing. Yeah. <laughs> yes, let's all say it together. Um, so these are laws that are being pushed by business interests and especially by this billionaire-backed organization that's been lobbying out of Florida. And we're seeing them in Arkansas, Ohio, Iowa, a lot of states that have grappled with labor shortages in these industrial sectors. And the idea of the laws is to make it easier for kids as young as 14 and 15 to work overnight, work at meat processing plants, work without a permit or any age verification. And some people argue that it's good for children to work and you learn by working. And child welfare advocates, I think, are very worried that these laws are going to encourage kids to take dangerous jobs and to skimp on sleep and sort of be where children shouldn't be. You know, we're both kind of expressing this, this shock, um, which we shouldn't be surprised at anything, I guess, at this point anymore. What, what kind of reactions have you been getting to this reporting, mm. especially from the communities that you're talking about where the, their families really are reliant on this income? I mean, people took huge risks to talk to me for this story. I talked to more than 100 children who are currently working these dangerous, illegal jobs and their families. And the reason why they talked is because they feel like there isn't any support for them in this country. And they want people to know what they're going through. And they want people maybe back in Guatemala or Central America to sort of know what it's like here, that it's not going to be this promised land, the way that they might have thought. There have been some reforms made just in the last two months since my first story on this came out. Two days later, the Biden administration announced that it was going to get much more serious about enforcing child labor laws. And we've seen a lot of changes at the Department of Labor. They're getting more resources. They're focusing more on proactively looking for these kids, which is something that seems like it might make a difference. And the other part of all of this is the support that these kids are getting or not getting. And the government is pledging to at least give kids a couple months of social work mm. when they are first released to their sponsors. And the hope is at least there could be a trusted adult where a kid could go and confide, you know, that they're being exploited, that they're being forced to work 
somebody could be there to help them for a few months at least. It's not much, but it's more than these kids have historically been getting. Hannah Dreyer, an investigative reporter for The New York Times. Thank you so much. Hannah, thanks a lot. Thank you. Man. I was um, on a panel a couple of weeks ago with a woman, Melissa Sanchez, from ProPublica, who's been reporting on this topic as well, going back to at least 2020. And one of the things she was saying was that, you know, even in her own family, there were a lot of, you know, child workers. And that is what helped her family kind of establish itself Hmm. in the United States. And... At the same time, now she's doing, you know, similar to reporting to what Hannah's been doing, um, and it's it's devastating. And it is so tied with sort of people in extraordinarily vulnerable situations, but and also sort of the frailties and incompetence of, of our own systems. Yeah, and, and so we are, not for the first time, uh, adults in America are failing the children of America and other countries. Anyway, anyway, on that cheery thought, hmm. uh, we want to know what you think. Our number is 508-827-6278, 508-827-6278, 508-UB-SMART is another way to dial that. Or you can email us, makemesmart at marketplace.org. We're coming right back. It is time to do some news, Ms. Adams. Mm -hmm. I am very fascinated by a report out from the World Economic Forum this week. Um, Well, I guess April 30th, but whatever most people are talking about this week. And it's the Future of Jobs Report 2023. It's, It's a lengthy report, but there's a nice summary that we'll link to on the show notes where basically they surveyed, you know, something like 800 different businesses globally, businesses, I'm sorry, 803 companies globally, collectively representing 11.3 million workers across 27 industry clusters and 45 economies from all world regions. And some of the takeaways about where the global labor market is going Mm -hmm. are Things that you might expect, lots of um, companies interested in AI and automation, and also some things that you might not expect in terms of which industries are going to, you know, be okay. Like, apparently, retail is going to, you know, retail jobs are Hmm. still going to exist in very similar ways, but... You know, there is one of the big headlines was employers anticipate a structural labor labor market churn of 23 percent of jobs in the next five years. That's a lot. Right. That's That's a a lot. lot. That's a lot. And so, you know, it's a mix of emerging jobs and declining jobs eliminated. Right. So emerging jobs added, declining jobs eliminated. So. Higher than average churn in the supply chain and transportation and media, entertainment and sports industries. So the supply chain and transportation makes a lot of sense with automation, self-driving, things like that. Um, You know, media, entertainment and sports. We've Mm -hmm. been talking about Mm -hmm. how we're all kind of just like losing our jobs, but that's okay. But lower than average churn in manufacturing as well as retail and wholesale of consumer goods. And I have to wonder if that has to do with the fact that 
they've kind of automated those as much as you can at this point, right? Like mm-hmm. you have to have a certain number of people in a store to sell things if you are going to have a store. You know, Amazon has to have somebody managing the robots, you know, on the floors of its, you know, you know, packing facilities. Sure. Um and manufacturing, obviously, that push to automation has been going on for decades. Um, so, you know, organizations today, this is a different one, estimate that 34% of all business-related tasks are performed by machines, with the remaining 66% performed by humans. Not a huge increase from 2020, which, again, kind of reinforces that idea that a lot of the automation in some sectors has already happened, but in other sectors, like ours, it's just now kind of kicking off. And I think there's a ton of interesting takeaways in this. And just as we all think about you know, how to keep ourselves relevant in the workforce. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's useful to read these kind of things and see, you know, what's going to happen in your industry, where there's opportunity for growth, where we might all need a little bit more training. I, I've told you the joke, I'm sure I have, about the, <laughs> the last uh, factory uh, on the planet and, and uh, the, the staff there. It's one man mm-hmm. and one dog. I've told you this joke, right? <laughs> you okay. have, but maybe right. people haven't right. heard it. Super quick. Last factory on the planet. There's a man there and there's a dog there. The man's job is to feed the dog. The dog's job is to make sure the man doesn't touch the equipment. <laughs> right? I mean, that's the way it goes. That's the way it goes. All right. Yeah. I uh, mean, it's the sort of George Jetson thing. Oh, yeah, totally. Like, totally. His job that his whole life was built around was yep. to go to work and push a button. Yep. The end. <laughs> George yeah. Jetson? Anyway. Yeah, Totally. Uh, All right. I've got two ones, just sort of a quick uh, revisit of something we did a couple of weeks ago, the space economy. There's a story in Bloomberg Business Week, which we will put on the show page, um, talking about um, how nobody really knows exactly what the rules are up there, who is going to set the rules. There are apparently two American private company space probes that are going to go to the moon later this year. The Israelis tried a couple of years ago. They crashed. The Japanese just crashed last week. But we're starting to get to the point where private companies are going out there, as we talked about on that episode, and ain't nobody knows exactly what the rules are. And oh, by the way, private companies might not care what the rules are. See also. It sort of. Go ahead. Sorry. It reminds me of, you know, what you read about sort of the colonialist expansion where all these private companies, you know, just lawlessly tramped, you know, all over the world. Of course, you know, in that context, they were murdering people as they went and taking over property that other people were using. Um, Whereas in space, there's nobody there that we know about yet. But, you know, the similar, (laughs) the similar, you know, fact of just like, no rules, fine, we're going to exploit that. I have to say, a couple of years ago when I discovered that space lawyer was actually a real job, it just kind of blew my mind. (laughs) Did Did you think about going to law school? Absolutely. Yeah, I yeah. love that you That'd put that cool, in the right? past tense. <laughs> well, oh, look, I told you. Here's the deal on me in law school. I would love to study the law. I have no idea, to, no desire to actually be a lawyer. That's that's the problem. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I mean, like, yeah. I, I'm still not giving up on, on being an astronaut. So Fair enough. we'll see. Fair enough. But the second one is a story. My second item is a story from the Wall Street Journal from it, it is now two days ago. Uh, but it is all the more relevant because of what we talked about yesterday on this podcast that Janet Yellen at the Treasury Department and the Congressional Budget Office both say that early June is when we're going to hit the X date for the debt limit. John Hilsenrath, who's a very well-plugged-in Federal Reserve reporter, has a piece uh, in the journal about what the Treasury Department and the Federal Reserve might do if there is actually a default 
because Republicans in Congress won't lift the debt limit. Anyway, he goes through a bunch of scenarios. I recommend it to you because believe me when I tell you, you are going to be hearing more about this story in the next 30 days than you really ever would want to. And it will help you to know what some of the ground rules are. Hilsenrath lays them out, but the last paragraph of this story is the kicker. So Hilsenrath goes through, you know, what happened in 2011, what happened in various other debt limit standoffs, and it closes with this. More than a decade later, speaking uh, about the 2011 crisis now in the present day, more than a decade later, Ms. Yellen is now Treasury Secretary, and it is still hard to say if she is ready for what comes next. That is not a reassuring way to frame the next 30 Hmm. days of our lives. Yeah, and just to sort of lay out the stakes that are, are highlighted here and that we've we've covered in these debt ceiling debates over the years, it will come down to really hard decisions about who gets paid and mm-hmm. prioritizing servicing the national debt and paying interest payments so it doesn't collapse the global economy, but, you know, at the expense of what? At the expense of paying our service members? at the expense of paying people's social security checks, at the expense of paying out government contractors who are providing services to the federal government. There's going to end up being a ranking of, if this actually happens, who actually gets paid and when. Yeah, and it's going to be messy. It's going to be very messy. Messy, messy. Yep. All right, that is it for the News Fix. Let us do the mailbag. Hi, Kai and Kimberly. This is Godfrey from San Francisco. Jesse from Charleston, South Carolina. And I have a follow-up question. It has me thinking and feeling a lot of things. We have been talking quite a bit about how ChatGPT is already changing the way we work, and there's some of that in that uh, World Economic Forum report I was just talking about. Megan sent us this message about how her company is dealing with AI. Hi, Kai and Kimberly. This is Megan in Kalamazoo, Michigan. I work for a public accounting firm, and when I booted up my work computer and went to the homepage of our internal site, one of the updates had the headline, please refrain from using chat GPT Mm. and other conversational Mm. AI tools at this time. Mm. Among the reasons given, employees must not use directly generated content as it may infringe on intellectual property rights or violate applicable laws. They did say they're looking into ways that AI tools might be used in the future and have invited us to share any input that we may have. Just another bit of anecdata for the pile. Yeah, I I love that anecdata. anecdata. (laughs) I I hadn't really thought about the fact that lawsuits are going to start flying over the use of this stuff. Neither did I. Like I knew that like ChatGPT and and OpenAI and these companies are potentially going to, you know, be sued for siphoning people's intellectual property to feed into their data sets. But then what is the liability Mm -hmm. of people who use that content that ChatGPT generates and make money off of it? Mm -hmm. Like that could have a knock on liability. I didn't I definitely had not thought of that. Thank you, Megan. That's super interesting. All right, before we go, uh, we're going to leave you with this week's answer to the Make Me Smart question, which is, of course, what is something you thought you knew, later found out you were wrong about? Here we go. Hi, this is Lisa from Austin, Texas. And I wanted to contribute to the something I thought I knew but found out I was wrong. Uh, I'm embarrassed to say that your reference to Sting all the time on your uh, podcast, I thought those were actually little musical segues written and performed by Sting. So thanks for setting me straight. Uh, I love that. 
Oh, man. We, we have so many weird terms that we use we really in, in media that like I love that one. make no sense on the first no. pass. But yeah, that's great. That's, that's great. That's awesome. We said thanks. If that's only, great. right? Yeah, if right? only. That'd be, <laughs> that's right. That's right. We probably couldn't afford the right. But that's a whole different thing. I was about to say, the royalties, oh, yeah. Man. Yeah. All right. We want to know what you've been wrong about. Leave us a voice message with your answer to the Make Me Smart question. Our number is 508-827-6278, also known as 508-UB-SMART. Be grateful, Mustang. Make Me Smart is produced by Courtney Bergseeker. Ellen Rolfes writes our newsletter. Our intern is Antonio Barreras. Today's program is engineered by Juan Carlos Dorado. Becca Weinman is going to mix it down later. Ben Talladay and Daniel Ramirez composed our theme music. Our senior producer is Marissa Cabrera. Bridget Bodner is the director of podcast. Francesca Levy is the executive director of digital. And Marketplace's vice president and general manager is Neil Scarper. There we go. There we go. Got them all in on time, too. Got more mm-hmm. music than we know what to do with. You playing the long version, one Carlos? Do, is that what's going you on? You can do a little dance if you want. I don't do no dancing in my studios. <laughs> Absolutely no dancing in my studios. It's my rules. My studio, my rules. <laughs>